0: You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This mini-series of The Public Discourse examines ideas of dialogue, equality, and justice inspired by the life and teachings of Abdu'l-Baha, whose passing 100 years ago is commemorated this year. We will discuss some of these themes and how they relate to the needs of contemporary society. Abdul Baha was the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, and he wrote extensively on the social issues of his time more than 100 years ago. Late in his life in 1912, he visited Montreal for 10 days and addressed large audiences of diverse religious and ethnic backgrounds, both French and English, on subjects such as peace, gender equality, the elimination of prejudice, and economic justice. He presented a vision of the oneness of humanity that shone like a lamp on the challenges of his era, and they continue to point to a brighter future for Canadian society. I'm Laura Friedman, hosting this episode of the Public Discourse for the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. I am delighted to be joined by three guests today for our first episode of a new series we are calling A Vision of Oneness. I'll be talking with our guests about the causes of polarization and division in our society and how we can strengthen processes of dialogue, democratic deliberation, and consultation within our culture and politics. But before we get to our conversation, I'd like to ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves. Sabrina? Sabrina?
1: Hi there, my name is Sabrina Dallin. I'm the Executive Director of the Samara Centre for Democracy.
0: Great, thanks. Uh, Michael?
2: Hi, I'm Michael Sobot. I'm a lawyer by training, but currently pursuing a PhD in political theory. Wonderful. And Jennifer? Hi, I'm
3: Jennifer Wallowick. I'm an anthropologist by training, and I currently lead our Strengthening Canadian Democracy initiative at the Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue in Vancouver.
0: Wonderful. I am really happy to have all three of you uh, here with us today. You know, this is our first podcast after a little bit of a break, and we've been hearing from people about, you know, when's the next one coming? So I'm really happy that you're here with us to kick off uh, season three. So, Sabrina, uh, I'd like to start with you. So we just went through an election in Canada, and while we didn't see a great deal of change at the level of political representation Events during the campaign reflected a heightened degree of political tension. Do you think we are becoming more polarized as a society? Well, thank you so much for having me today. It's a pleasure
1: to to be a guest. Um, Well, I think we're at a critical juncture to define the next chapter for democracy in Canada, having viewed everything through a pandemic lens over the last year and a half. Um, we can see things differently now. Um, Over the course of the pandemic, the public has been tuned in and engaged. The majority have been following public health protocols, wearing masks, have gotten vaccinated. There's also been a surge in community organizing in response to the uh, inequity that's been exacerbated by COVID-19. And also during this period, we've seen long-standing social movements break through into the mainstream and all of this counters the myth of disengagement amongst our electorate and a lot of this mobilizing flowed from the pro-democracy elements of social media platforms, elements that enable connection and information sharing, especially uh, during a time when we had to be physically distanced from one another. So. Uh, that's that's the pro. However, we know there are aspects of social media, uh, these connection uh, and information sharing aspects in particular that have also been weaponized to deliver abuse and incite violence uh, and polarize. And the circumstance has an impact in the political context. This means people are leaving politics or not entering politics or just steering clear of the political conversation because it's divisive and uh, because there's a there's a polarizing toxic aspect to it um, that is happening in real life but also largely online and this is a barrier to civic engagement Um, at the samara center we are observing this and we we see that this is a an an instance in a circumstance that's not getting better it's getting worse Um, elections are a period of high toxicity online So we use the recent federal election as an opportunity to collect data and increase public awareness about the state of Canada's uh, online political conversation. Um, It's really interesting when you measure the obvious. Anecdotally, we all know that the state of the online political conversation in Canada is is quite toxic. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, it's important to measure so we deployed uh, a Sam, uh, we deployed a bot during the election called Sam or Sam bot. So during the federal election, we deployed uh, a bot that tracked toxic tweets uh, received by incumbent candidates and party leaders in the lead up to election day. And this is just a really small slice of the political conversation online. Uh, We tracked 300 uh, accounts, we collected over 2 million tweets, and we analyzed for different forms of toxicity, whether that was profane, threatening, sexually explicit, or insulting. Um, And our findings confirmed what many in the political world know anecdotally, that there's a staggering volume and intensity of toxicity, and about 20% of what we tracked qualified as uh, as toxic. Um, so this matters because nearly half of uh, Canada's social media users say they don't feel uh, safe participating in political conversations online. They steer clear of it. And that's where a bulk of the political conversation is happening, particularly during the pandemic. Um, and Amongst the groups that feel unsafe sharing their views online are uh, largely women because they face a, a huge proportion of digital harassment and also racialized Canadians in particular because they bear the brunt of abuse online as well. So bigger picture, we're interested in having the data that we collected with Sambot guide discussions about how we handle the relationship between technology and democracy and we have a larger report based on our findings coming out later this fall. Um and our intention here is to seize an opportunity to evolve not only our policies but our democratic culture and addressing polarization is inherent there.
0: I love how you say that. It uh it gives you hope and it keeps you, you know, inspired to keep going and Um, This is a good segue for speaking more about democracy. Jennifer, you work on a program at the Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue that aims to strengthen Canadian democracy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? When we look at democracies across the world, we also find it's a system of government
3: that really is about letting most people not have to care too much about politics. Mm -hmm. There is another scholar called Robert Talese, he's got a book called Overdoing Democracy, who really talks about the whole point of democracy is so that we can form our own personal connections, our own personal pursuits outside of politics, that we have that liberal freedom to do that at a local level. And when we look across the world, democracies tend to do that a little bit better or a lot better in many cases than authoritarian or other forms of government. So that's where we've come. So you also asked what's causing polarization right now. So what's going on right now, some of it Sabrina's mentioned around different technologies and systems. But really what's also going on is a different sense of awareness of difference and division because whenever you tweet something, it's out there forever. Mm-hmm, right. It's no longer a passing by conversation with your neighbor where you're venting at the end of the day and then it's ephemeral and it disappears. It's now out there and it's still dicks and someone finds it and they read it and they agree with it or they don't and they're forming their own communities around those sort of those traces of your feelings and your thoughts in the moment and what happens um, is also what's called belief polarization so when it's so easy to find people who agree with you and you only talk to people who agree with you you tend to become more extreme in your beliefs and your righteousness that you're right And Ezra Klein, in his book, Why Are We Polarized?, he talks about this sorting of ideas is nothing new, but what is new is the tension between the groups that Sabrina's talking about, that animosity between the different groups of the different polar ends of the spectrum, and that commitment, and we start to rationalize based on our initial beliefs, not actually listening to one another. So that's what's different.
0: I love how you say that. Um, Michael or Sabrina, feel free to chime in on anything that Jennifer said. So this is interesting because Michael, your your PhD research examines how to strengthen deliberative processes in politics. So I'm um, wondering if you could talk about some of the ways in which we can introduce consultative principles and practices into our public life.
2: Sure, thank you, Laura. I'll share a few thoughts. Um... I think picking up on this point uh, uh, that Jennifer made—that there's there are underlying human tendencies uh, by which we we define ourselves based on our differences and and then who is the other—and this kind of we can get into this extreme tribalism where even you know frivolous decisions about what kind of donuts we eat end up <laughs> becoming uh, important markers about who we who we conceive of ourselves to be. I think that's I think it's really important to have a clear vision of that as we think about what are the ways to get out of the. Maybe the the sort of funnel towards increasing polarization that we're in, and then we can also think about there are other human tendencies that we see across cultures uh, that move in a different direction. So there are tendencies towards uh, a universal kind of empathy. So when somebody sees someone else in pain, there's a universal reaction to to also feel feel pain. Right. And then I think it becomes a question of which of these are we feeding more in our society. And I think that there are there's a, quite a lot of research on how do you create a different kind of democratic process, one that's more deliberative, that gets people together who maybe don't see eye to eye, but lets them have a conversation instead of a, a fight. And I think both um, Jennifer and Sabrina would be much more qualified to speak about that aspect of this uh, this topic than I would. <laughs> Something I'm particularly interested in is ultimately, I suppose social change has to start with a change in ideas. And our ideas all change first in our own minds. And I'm, I'm interested in, what kind of conditions allow people to open their imaginations to a different set of possibilities for a democratic culture? And then how can that lead us into action?
0: That's interesting.
2: So in that context, I guess I'm interested in how, well, you know, uh, sort of a, so I come from a a legal background where adversarialism is the frame in which law takes place. Mm -hmm. And that has advantages, it has certain strengths, but it's also, I think, true that if we think about from an epi- epistemological perspective, how do we know what we know? Adversarialism is problematic because it it starts with the assumption that we believe we're right. And it assumes you know what you're for, you know what you're against. And I think sometimes that kind of moral clarity is very important. There are times when you need to you need to flat out say I am certain that this is right and I'm not going to be silent when something that's clearly wrong is happening. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that kind of moral clarity can be quite destructive because it means you aren't listening. Um, and a partisan space, an adversarial space, structures the conversation around these kind of fixed positions and has a default. I mean, increasingly, the, the political game, as I understand it, is one where parties are less trying to convince people who don't already agree with them and more trying to mobilize. Right. So during the last election, um, a, a candidate or a representative of a candidate in our writing came to the door and asked, my wife who opened the door, Um, who do you usually vote for? And she said, I don't usually vote by party. I I look at the the platforms and the candidates and then I make a decision. And this canvasser said, okay, thank you and moved on. (laughs) And the idea was strategically, they don't have the time to invest in converting somebody. They have to find the people who are likely already to vote for them and then mobilize them. Right. And I think there's a very old, I think it comes from the Buddhist tradition, a very old image that comes to mind when I think about how we approach our own views in public discourse. It's the story of the blind men and the elephant, which I'm sure <laughs> many, many of our listeners are familiar with. Um, so three blind men stumble upon something and they each feel a different part of it. And one of them concludes it's a snake because they're feeling the trunk of the elephant. One of them concludes it's a tree because they're feeling the leg. Another concludes it's a rope because they're feeling the tail. Right. The There's two lessons you could draw from this. One would be, well, they're too sure that they're right. <laughs> Um, And what they need to do is is be a little less sure that they're right and then they can can find a common truth The other conclusion though that you could reach is that well, maybe the 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 blind men here Just need to renounce the idea of truth. They just need to say well, you have your truth I have my truth and I don't think that's true either because there is an elephant out there. There is an objective (laughs) truth Um, Maybe what we need is to learn what the right balance is between humility about our own views but also a kind of conviction and faith that we can reach agreement through honest consultation. Not total agreement, not total consensus, but enough agreement to move forward on the things, the things that matter.
3: Right. I really love Michael's point there about humility in our own beliefs. You know, Part of what we're also seeing right now is this general distrust of expertise mm-hmm. because you can find your own people who agree with you and you can find facts that agree with you. And I put facts in quotation marks there. Right. And so there's this general sense, and we can see this in the climate crisis conversation of, you know, people continue to deny that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're so con- they're so strong in, the, in their conviction. And then the other piece that Michael was bringing up around, you know, what is around this discourse is we forget that democracy is about a system that leads us to compromise. Mm-hmm. And that's its whole point is that no one wins because you have to get a majority to vote, and it's really difficult to get the majority to vote to agree on anything. Right. And so you have to push back, and you have to find ways where you can meet others where they are.
1: Right. The, there's also the element of certainty that, you know, Michael, you're encouraging mm. us to question, and then, Jen, what you were talking about with political parties, like, oh, I have to identify with a political party, and then I can understand who I am. In relation to that, I think there's a, a sense that there's a demand for a certain level of certainty from the electorate to be extra firm in their beliefs and convictions and extra firm about what their political identity is. And it's just too much. And that's what prevents people from feeling like they can participate. They feel like there's some sort of standard that they're supposed to meet and uh, have this sort of static position permanently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just, I think, debilitating mm-hmm. in terms of activating civic participation in a in a full and robust way. Mm-hmm.
3: And it means the electorate is constantly disappointed.
2: Right.
0: Michael, you were going to say something?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I I actually, largely what Sabrina just said covers what I was going to say. Just something that comes to mind is um, maybe something else to mention in terms of a ray of light in the Canadian context is I think, I think we can frame our diversity along all, all ways you want to measure diversity. There's a way to look at it as, uh, well, a problem in that we're all so different. How can such a different group of people ever have cohesion? And I think I think there's something to that. But I think there's another way to think of, if we use an organic metaphor for, uh, if you think about when, when you're trying to grow crops, um, Monocultures we're learning in the agricultural sphere are actually pretty fragile. Um, the greater diversity in your the greater the diversity of your ecosystem, the more robust it is, uh, the more capable it is of of of, of um, meeting challenges. And if you think about the way plants grow, they a sterile soil um, can't really give rise to a healthy uh, ecosystem. Can't give rise to healthy plants. And there's, a, there's some thinking from a, um, a philosopher called uh, Habermas who talks about how in the modern world, we've structured many of our institutions in a way that they tend to sort of, I don't know if he uses this exact words, but he, they, it tends to sort of sterilize the soil that we live in. So if you think of our economic transactions, they've gone from very intimate in the context of villages um, in, in prior ages to very anonymous, where I don't need to know my grocer uh, and in the last five years, I haven't even need to say hi to the person who checks out my groceries because I just go to a self-serve kiosk and check out my own groceries while listening to something on my headphones. <laughs> I can have zero human interaction during my entire process of providing food for my family.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That I think can increase this tendency of us to, to only talk to people who already agree with us because there's no there's no drive. There's no uh, centripetal force that pushes us into conversation with others. Mm-hmm. But there is very solid research that suggests this when you have a society where people talk across difference and have social bonds across difference, so organizational forms where they meet with people who aren't like them in various ways, that really increases social cohesion. Right. Yeah. But I think that we can't rely on our institutions to create that environment for us because that's not what they're designed to do. Most of our institutions are designed to, in different ways, atomize and separate us. I think it's on the individuals and communities in a way to take the difficult effort of finding ways to be with difference. And so this is something that in, you know, the worldwide Baha'i community Mm -hmm. is trying to learn about this. Um, There's a process of consultation that is sort of the lifeblood of Baha'i community life. And apart from their religious affiliation, Baha'is tend to be very diverse in the settings where they're found. They come from all kinds of backgrounds. And it's really, really hard. Like I can speak from personal experience. There's the ideal of what consultation in a Baha'i community is supposed to be like. And then there's the reality. And there's a kind of perseverance that it calls for. And here again, I think that that sort of confidence or faith that this is something worth doing and that we can get better at developing this ability to talk through difference um, is really important because if you don't have that vision of what can come, then all those forces in society that are driving us apart, I think they'll... We'll just get swept along in the tide and, you know, yeah, like I look at my own life and I can so easily go through a whole week and COVID exacerbated this, of course, I can go through a whole week where I speak with nobody I don't already know. <laughs> and I think that's a, a, maybe a warning sign for a society as diverse as ours.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. As you said, the pandemic has caused us to isolate from others. And many times we end up turning to social media as our source of socialization. Uh, which could be a good thing, but then you know there's many faces to that coin. So, so Sabrina, I'd like to come back to you. Uh, I know Samara has been working on projects that aim to reduce the toxicity of online political culture and also improve the quality of conversation online. So. How do you think that we can talk better today in online spaces? Is it a matter of just being better social media citizens? Or does something also have to happen and change in the way that these spaces are structured?
1: Well, um, I'll I'll talk a little about Sambot. Um, So Sambot was analyzing tweets just for six weeks and uh, I think what was most compelling and depressing was that the toxicity held steady uh, throughout that period so a small fraction of what we found was severely toxic so that's something that would get uh, blocked or reported on twitter but for the most part it was toxic tweets that could just be shared without consequence And this is really damaging for our democracy because for candidates, politicians, their staffers, uh, this is material that will be coming at you at a really disturbing rate of Mm -hmm. dozens, hundreds, or thousands a day. And it's going to wear you down. It's death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, this isn't just about being precious about your feelings or needing to have a thick skin if you're going to be in the public eye. Um, this is going beyond the call to be resilient, which is a problematic call uh, in the first place. Right. This is about being abused as part of your commitment to public service. And it's an ugliness that really affects the electorate. Um, It's what's causing them to steer clear because they're either bored by the toxicity or they're intimidated by it. And this takes a toll on civic engagement, uh, which is ultimately really bad for our democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can talk about, you know, being more responsible as a social media user um, you know, in addressing the sense of anonymity that drives a lot of the toxic behavior that we see online, we can also talk about whether social media platforms should be regulated. And this is something that the uh, Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression has proposed. And we can talk about the need for institutions to evolve in response to digital toxicity because they've certainly been lagging behind and losing the public's trust. Uh, as a consequence, but I think it's also important for us to talk about political culture in Canada and the role of political parties in particular. So there's an opportunity here for political parties to do better, to establish more productive norms of behaviour within Canada's political community and just raise the bar on how they manage their relationship with the electorate. During this uh, last election, parties put a lot of effort into recruiting diverse candidates for this, uh, for this election. Right. The retention of those individuals in the political arena depends on the conditions of work, which currently in the online environment are hostile and also holding back public participation in our democracy. So, at the Samara Centre, we're really interested in how political parties are going to respond to the data that we collected with Sambot. What are they doing to support their candidates and their members? and how are they going to hold those in their direct circles to account because they are also participating in the proliferation of toxicity online which is leading to division in our society. Mm -hmm. Um, And if parties can't rise to the occasion here there's a pretty significant risk which is that the political discourse will continue to degrade and people will turn their backs on the political process. Political parties matter here because <laughs> what happens in the political environment sends a signal to the rest of society about who belongs, who's a leader, whose voice is heard, and what is the standard for engagement uh, and communication. Yep. Right, um, and also what is our what is our expectation around social cohesion to build off of what what Michael was just saying. So you know, being the target of digital vitriol, being near digital vitriol affects not only who enters politics, but who stays. Mm -hmm. And that has um, an effect that reverberates into our communities and into our day-to-day lived experience of power and uh, the functioning of our democracy. Mm. And so there's an opportunity here moving forward for political parties to establish a higher standard of engagement. Between the electorate and parties, um, and and a key element here is mm. how the electorate uses its vote mm. to reward the parties who can mm. have the courage to <laughs> conduct themselves in a in a more civically responsible manner.
3: And Sabrina, you touched on it just briefly, but I want to give it more space. Is that We know from research that the most effective way of moderating behavior is when that message comes from someone you see as in your community. Mm -hmm. Someone you identify with telling you, hey, you know, that makes me uncomfortable, is the best response towards someone's behavior. Having it come from someone that they view as outside of their group actually forces someone to entrench themselves in that position. It escalates things. And the other thing to do is that it needs to be named when it's small, Mm -hmm. because what we're seeing is escalation. And that's also normal. When you get a little bit of a positive bump, when someone likes your toxic tweet, your next tweet is going to be more toxic. Your next statement at the coffee shop is going to be a bit more out there. And that's where that belief polarization comes in. And so, you know, I think the Baha'i community in in relating back to the core values of pluralism around engagement and and naming those kind of interactions is a really good place to start. The other place to be is what is my reaction right now? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I hear see this toxicity, where am I feeling uncomfortable, scared, is often, you know, an association. And what does that turn on my fight or flight response? And to acknowledge that, and then the quick like rule I try to give people is what is a question that you can say instead of saying, you know, I don't like what you've just said. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is about curiosity. It's about asking the next question. So, you know, why is this important to you is always a good one. <laughs> My other favorite question is, could you unpack that a bit more for me? <laughs> and then often what they'll do is when they're as soon as they're, they're forced to, you know, confront what they've just mm-hmm. said and, and, and I find the meaning behind it, mm-hmm. their words soften. Right, their their words actually start to explain, it and you go, oh, okay, I can mm-hmm. understand that, and then maybe ask another question, mm-hmm, interesting. and there, and now you've brought someone back, and then you then you can say, and you know what, that initial question makes me feel uncomfortable, and I I, I respect you for this reason, mm-hmm. but we need to start, you know, being part of the solution, mm-hmm. and I feel like
0: that first statement is part of the problem. So actually, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you about a different kind of social space, the neighborhood. So you wrote recently for policy options about the importance of organizing and participating in our communities and that involvement in this hyper-local way can make political participation a joyful thing. So do you think this is part of our solution to polarization? This face-to-face contact, more connection, more joy, even the way that you explained how to confront someone that you might not agree with, the way that you described it, I I got a sense of joy out of that interaction, that hypothetical interaction. It felt joyful to me and just light, so... Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I think Michael also touched on It's like we need to start talking to strangers. We need to start saying, hey, how are you doing again? Uh, granted, the pandemic and our whole social bubble and social distancing has gotten us all really out of practice for the last 18 months. So, you know, <laughs> here's your homework assignment yeah. is to say hello through your mask to a stranger on the street. Right. Um, but really, my thinking about joy comes from an evaluation we did for a Vancouver Foundation small grant mm-hmm. Uh Program It's been around for, you know, quite a few years. And what they do is they give individuals $500 to do some sort of community building project. And it's a really low barrier. Anyone can do it. There's no, there's very few rules around it. Mm -hmm. And as we interviewed the people who participated, uh, we started to find some kind of core themes among these leaders. And one was, A, they had an issue they cared about, it might be social isolation, it might be food security, it might be climate, it might be you know, traffic in their neighborhood or recycling, and they could sort of see a solution they wanted to try. There was a general atmosphere of experimentation, They would they usually someone encouraged them to go for the grant, they, they would then encourage others to try it or to join them to try something new. They also recognized they had some organizing skills themselves. So they might be teachers or folks who were like that parent who always brings a snack to the um, children's sports team game. (laughs) Or they were a grandma who, you know, has a big family and knows how to wrangle people. So they already had some skills and sort of organizing. But the last piece was that they always connected that issue and their solution to something that brought them personal joy. Mm -hmm. So, for example... Someone was concerned about food security, and she was talking to her neighbors, and they said, you know, we live in an apartment building now because we've, down, we've downsized, and we really miss our gardens. Mm. And so she, her project was to get seeds and plants and planters for her neighbors, and they would then planted all of their um, vegetables on their, their patios nice. and their decks going up into this building. And so it brought them a sense of joy. So they were, they were doing a solution around food security, around social isolation, around climate change, but they were doing it in a way that was often a hobby or was something that was joyful. Another woman was really concerned around our fast fashion and the way in which we pick up clothes and we throw them away, and she liked sewing. So she organized classes for her neighborhood to teach them how to sew. Nice. And that would become a socially distant circle on someone's front lawn in summertime. And they would come in and they would you know, learn how to mend their shirt. But it was because it brought them joy.
0: <laughs> well, that brings me joy. And it also brings me a lot of hope to hear all that. And speaking of hope, Michael, I was wondering what makes you hopeful that Canada can become become a more unified society, more just, more capable of solving our challenges through dialogue? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. I think if I honestly kind of check in with myself, I tend to be not particularly hopeful in the short term, but I, <laughs> I do, I think, have a lot of hope about the medium and long term. I think the, the, the two sources of hope for me, one would be the fact that we're going through crises. Mm. I think, Gives me hope in, in a kind of a weird way. So, we've talked a lot about social media. Um, and I think it's fair to say that what social media, you know, internet technologies in general, are doing to humanity could be termed a crisis. They've ar- arisen incredibly quickly, more quickly than we've had time to grapple with what they do to our minds, what they do to our communities. But part of what they're doing, I think, is they are turbocharging <laughs> tendencies that have always been there, tendencies to, to polarize, to attack. Difference,
0: yeah,
2: uh, to 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 buy into convenient, quote unquote truths that aren't actually true, but are just what we want to hear. These things have always been with us, and they've inflicted huge harm throughout throughout human history. Now they're being dragged into the light, right? Because we can't just ignore them. Um, nobody can afford to ignore them in the age of social media. They're harming all of us in such obvious ways. My hope is that once we truly come to grips with the the full scale of these problems and in, in their social media kind of manifestation. We won't go back to what we were before the internet will be better mm. because we'll now understand a problem that was always there and we'll be able to build a society that, that sort of works around it. The other great crisis, of course, of our time is the environmental crisis. And here I, I really, um, it really resonated what Sabrina shared about the problem of toxicity driving out. Uh, important contributors from public service. There's a very, very old story. Um, It's in Plato's Republic. He talks about this this problem when he says, if you owned a ship and you wanted to decide who was going to be the navigator of the ship, (laughs) what would you do to choose a navigator? Would you have all of the sailors fight until the last person standing? Was was he won? So he gets to be the navigator. <laughs> no, because then all you've done is you've chosen the best fighter to be your navigator. This person knows nothing about how to read star charts and how to, <laughs> you know, regulate a crew. But that's in, in in large part we select for those qualities in our leadership. The more we have a, a sort of a, a, a toxic, divisive kind of politics, mm. uh, the environment doesn't care who our leaders are. The environment we can select the most pugnacious, thick skinned, you know. <laughs> most rhetorically skilled politician to lead us and if that person can't you know uh, grapple with the environmental crisis that we're facing then the the planet doesn't care it's it's going to continue doing what we're what it's done thanks to what we're doing to it that crisis i think is going to demand change in everything including our political culture and whether it comes sooner or later i guess is up to us mm-hmm. but eventually i am confident that faced with that kind of existential threat will we will uh, we'll, we'll shape up.
0: Mm.
2: And then maybe the, the less sort of, that said sort of like a, uh, just a silver lining in a very gray cloud. But <laughs> the other big point of strength, I think that gives me hope is our diversity. You know, depending on how you think about diversity, I, I guess I touched on this before, you can think of it as a problem, or you can think of it as a strength. And if we have the right image in mind about diversity, I think it can really help us realize the great strength of a place like Canada. So one one metaphor that the Baha'i community is learning about is how do you think about all of humanity in the same way we think of a human body? The human body uh, draws its strength from its diversity. Every cell has a different function. They all have their own identity. They're all supported by the body and they all support the overall project of keeping the body alive and healthy. Mm. And in that context, diversity is a blessing because there are so many strengths from all of the... Uh, differences that we have—we have a different perspective, different cultural resources we can draw on to build a better society. That—that that is a, a natural resource that I think we have yet to learn quite how to draw on. But, but we—we we are, I think, we do realize it's a strength and compared to you know prior centuries. We know and on some level that humanity is one. Uh, this is what we teach our children. We didn't teach our children this two hundred years ago. You know, as adults, we don't always honor that truth, but. At least we know that that's what we aspire to, and I think that there's a lot of hope there. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's I guess where I where I look to for for hope.
0: Thank you, thank you, Michael and and Sabrina, Jennifer. What what makes you more hopeful that we can become a more unified and just society?
3: I think for me, the fact that we are beginning to really have good conversations, we're having good dialogue about this issue of division or polarization. It were were. Uh, moving a bit out of the reactionary phase into the, okay, what's my role? Where am I contributing? Where am I not? It's something that people are looking for answers of how to be part of the solution. My cat in the background is excited.
0: <laughs>
3: Your cat agrees. <laughs> um, he agrees. Um, and it's it's one of those things, I, I I embrace dialogue, and it's part of the reason I love working at the center, is when I explain what dialogue is, is to people i think i tell them that debate is about the no but Hmm. here's the no but uh you're wrong because and when i think about dialogue i think about improv which is a rule is yes and and so building on the baha'i community or michael's comment about diversity builds in the and Hmm. it brings Hmm. in the stuff that you haven't thought about it fills in the gaps Like there are no gaps because we have so many people who have so many different expertise and so much lived experience Mm. that the answers are there. And there's also support when you need to, you know, grieve because you got to give something up. This is the big question for our next generation is what do we need to stop doing to help climate, Mm. to help bring us back together? And, And a lot of those things are things that make it convenient. They make us feel good. They make us feel powerful. Um, and so you have a community there that's going to help you say, you know what, I know it sucks that you need to give up your second car or that, you know, you need to stop being a jerk on social media, (laughs) but we're here for you. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's there and that's
1: what
0: gives me hope. Awesome. And Sabrina, what gives you hope? I
1: think what, what, uh, what gives me hope is the awakening uh i think that the pandemic has prompted in canada about Mm. who we are as a country and uh what what more we can be next and for us to become aspirational and have our imaginations unlocked and to and to understand that we don't have to be entrenched in any one single way of being Mm. um i think We've seen also during the pandemic this this mainstream increased mainstream understanding of systemic barriers and an increased proximity to our leaders. We've been able to see inside their kitchens and living rooms and things <laughs> right. like that because we've all just been reduced to Zoom squares. And I think that's kind of flattened things in a really good way for a lot of people And helped address the hesitation that is present within the electorate of, oh, I'm not supposed to ask that, or I'm not supposed to question that, or that's not for me to know, or that's (laughs) not my, you know, position, or that's for someone else to think about or do. There's been this awakening of like, hey, wait, like those are my institutions, what's going on? Where's my <laughs> daily briefing? How come we're not as good as New Zealand? And, you know, you need to be accountable to me in a really healthy and productive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's been really uh, hopeful and heartening for for me to see over the course of the pandemic, um, you know, in my family and in my community, uh, where there are people who wouldn't have identified as being politically engaged before, Mm -hmm. but there's a new sense of agency and connection now that I hope we can harness to evolve who we are as a country and to evolve uh, how we conduct ourselves and, and have our democracy.
0: Thank you, Sabrina. And thank you all for sharing your ideas on democracy, on dialogue, on social cohesion, even on humility. Uh, on how we can contribute more constructively in social media spaces and also become more joyful, active agents. (laughs) So I was certainly inspired by our conversation, and I really love how y'all pointed out uh, on the ways that we can focus on our strengths, even within our, our diversity. And this idea of yes, and is something I'll take with me. And you've certainly left me with glimpses of hope for how we can move forward in this more unified and just society. So thank you all for joining us today on The Public Discourse. Thank you. It was lovely. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank
2: you so much. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca. And follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca,
1: where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.